This is an ABC podcast. Today and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. This week we'll visit some brand new babbling springs in the outback and meet a farmer on a mission to get synthetic fertiliser off his list of bills. Costs are always going up. Soils become a massive focus. Uh, there's lots of environmental concerns that, that we need to address. And just in the six, seven years that I was out of the industry, it's been quite evident that our synthetic inputs have increased massively. And Serena Lock is here to run through this week's biggest rural news before we get to all of that though and Serena this week I'm in the beautiful Riverina in southern New South Wales and I've been very happy to see that this place is absolutely chockers with water every low-lying bit of land is glassy with water the bidgee is running a banker and all four gates at the Hume Dam were open at one point this week wonderful scenes but it's making me wonder how long we can enjoy all of this because a rare event is about to occur a third La Nina is forecast for the rest of the year, and since everything is so wet already, I'm guessing that raises the chance of more floods. Yes, the Bureau of Meteorology has dropped the bomb and declared a La Nina alert. Did you like what I did there? And while <laughs> farmers normally love mud, the ground is still sodden from two wet years in southeastern Australia. Now, a third wet year in a row has only occurred two other times in the past 50 years. Now, La Nina's wet in Australia runs counter in Africa and America. The US, for example, as you know well, is experiencing a 20-year drought and harvests in Africa are failing and the water sources there are drying up. So climate models here suggest a La Nina could return by early to mid-spring. And principal climate analyst with Ag Econ, John Walsh, told Alice Marshall the landscape was still very wet across the growing regions. I know a lot of the storage, irrigation storage dams are letting out water in advance of anticipating these events. Um, but look, as the, climb, as the seasons warm up and we get into spring, daytime temperatures increase, landscapes and, you know, can, the, the fields can dry out quite quickly. Um, you know, when, when things start growing and plants start using water. But certainly, look, there's always that risk if we get this, you know, rare sequence of events where we see the, you know, wet phase Indian Ocean coupled with a La Nina. A major food security conference in Canberra has been told that Australia's investment in agricultural research needs a bit more attention. Yes, rich countries used to be the biggest investors in agricultural research and development, but now it's developing countries. So it's flipped the Asia-Pacific region in general and China in particular. Now, it's a major shift since the 1980s, according to Professor of Plant Economics at the University of Minnesota, Philip Pardy, and he's speaking at that Crawford Fund conference on food security in Canberra. He says climates and soils are changing very rapidly and it's affecting agricultural productivity. Whilst we've seen some countries increase their investments, others have stalled their investments. So Australia is basically about where it was in real terms 20 years ago in terms of its public investment in food ag R&D. And in the US, where I currently work, they've been actively disinvesting in the public sector in food ag R&D. So their investment levels now are where they were 50 years ago. That lack of investment will eventually catch up with you and undercut the ability to change to these changing production environments that we're now seeing around the world. It makes me think back about 20 years 
where he was saying that the investment has stalled and nearly every town or at least every region had its own extension officer from the local ag department running little trials and things like that. And those things still go on with private community groups, but I guess nowhere near the level and the level of funding that they used to take place as. That's right. And so he was actually taking into account both private and public investment Mm. and all of it has plateaued in Australia. And at the same time, you know, we're dealing with more and more difficult sort of seasons and greater variability with climate change. Mm. No good. Well, it's been nearly two months on since Barola mite was detected in New South (laughs) Wales and authorities still don't know where it came from. No, but like the CSI operation this is, scientists are looking at genomic testing of the Varroa mite to find out where it came from. But so far, they do know the Varroa are not resistant to the chemicals or miticides. So Steve Fuller, president of the New South Wales Apiarists Association, says they've stripped the shelves in New Zealand of this chemical. We've got a lot on order. It's caught us a little bit un- unawares of that. Uh because we didn't have a great big stockpile because it has a shelf life and just getting it all now. So it is all coming in. I think we had 80,000 come in a couple of weeks ago and we've got another container coming in. So I think we're pretty well covered with the miticide strips at the moment. Well, New South Wales has lifted some of the restrictions it had on beekeepers as they've worked to control the Baroma outbreak. Yes, and it's been two months since the pest Varroa mite was discovered near the port of Newcastle. And the mite has been detected in 100 hives, which have been destroyed now. But New South Wales emergency response has had some success and is now allowing beekeepers 50 kilometres away from the target zone to move their hives. Although it is a bit too late for the almond pollination, uh, which will suffer a big reduction in production this year. Now, the teams are still attempting to eradicate Varroa in the 10 kilometre radius around any discoveries. And there's also a surveillance going on, 25 kilometres in a radius around that. Now, the Agriculture Minister, Dougal Saunders, says beekeepers who've been in that yellow zone, the wider zone, can now move their hives. And it's all based on the fact that we've done a lot of testing uh, over the past few months to, to make sure that we're at the stage now to, to feel comfortable doing what we're doing. And that is essentially saying what was the yellow zone is now, like the rest of New South Wales, it is clear of Roma. We're confident in that, that the experts that we've had in the field have done an extraordinary job and we can move forward now uh, and provide people a bit more certainty with movement. So beekeepers say they're now able to get back to normal. New South Wales Apiarists Association President Steve Fuller, we just heard from a minute ago, has 1,500 hives at Nana Glen in Grafton that were locked down, and they're now free to pollinate macadamias. Well, nearly. Uh, For macadamia pollination under the current system, we have to uh, alcohol wash 10% of them. So it's about 150 hives out of the whole lot. And then we're right to apply for our permit. Um, We've done our online training. Uh, Once the permits are in place, then we can actually go and um, uh, take them over. Well, with the Varroa mite now in Australia, I hear there's more interest in nurturing populations of Australia's native bees so they can do pollination work on orchards. Yeah, so the introduced European honeybees are the buzzing workforce of agriculture and they're essential really to billions of dollars worth of production, fruits and nuts and vegetables. 
and 90% of the macadamia crop, for example, relies on pollination by European honeybees. But the Bundaberg macadamia grower, Jeff Chivers, has been using native stingless bees. And to get enough of them, he's enlisted the help of locals and friends who act as foster parents for native beehives in their backyards. And those friends are hosting 150 native beehives and they look after the bees when he doesn't need them to pollinate his nut trees. We need to have feed for those bees in the off season. So we actually host them out to families uh, and friends in, in Bundaberg who have either large areas of native bush around them or backyards in the middle of town where there's lots of flowering plants or vegetable patches that the bees can actually feed on. We've found that the bees actually flourish. Well, with some good news, salads are back on the menu with the price of lettuce now falling. Yes, we were amazed, weren't we, when mm. single iceberg lettuce was selling for around $12 each. I certainly stopped buying it for a while. Now, the <laughs> Queensland growers in the Lockyer Valley are back into production. Three months since the flooding inundated their paddocks and washed away their crops. Mulgawi Yowie Salads director Shannon Moss says it takes at least four months to get back into production. When you've been hit with a flood, it's all the prep work that you've lost pre-flood because we spend weeks, you know, all the paddocks need to be ploughed, um, gypsum, um, certain, they need to be um, inputs put into the ground and we lost all those inputs. So that took us a long time to recover. Um, so much so that we don't have even have a fertiliser bank anymore. So we usually we carry fertiliser from one crop to the next um, and we've lost all that fertiliser bank. So we have to really concentrate a lot more on nutrition at the moment. We really lost our minds over the $12 lettuces, so I'm sure it's the most appreciated those growers have ever felt. Yeah, the fast food joints got involved, <laughs> didn't they, and served up cabbage or something. Well, here's another problem that we don't hear a lot about. Rams are getting too big, and that's causing problems for shearers. Yeah, they're not quite as big as the ugly concrete sculpture, the big merino and golden. <laughs> um, but sheep and, and so therefore rams um, have been bred much larger than, uh, gosh, their original small Spanish merino they came from. And the debate about big rams and how to handle them was reignited recently at the Australian Sheep and Wool Show when a ram weighing more than, wait for it, 170 kilograms wow. sold for... $115,000. Now, Trent Carter, president of the Manu Stud Merino Breeders Association, says sheep producers need to improve their conditions for shearers. The agricultural shearing industry as a whole is well and truly behind. Um, you look at other industries, you know, 15 kilos and I dare lift above without support. Uh, you know, a lot of females in the shearing industry now and are doing a, such a phenomenal job from shed staff all the way through to shearing so you know support them back them give females the the clean um, entities that they deserve so what has actually been done to make shearing sheep easier well not much has been done but maybe a little bit now rams as we just said can weigh between 80 to 160 kilograms that's a lot of weight to tip over and shear so a pair of shearers in tasmania has developed a mobile trailer using a new south wales invention incidentally that holds the ram in place upright now because it's on a trailer they're planning to take it from farm to farm to shear the rams now shearers jack monks and dave asherson say you can shear the rams at waist height 
This way we don't have to sedate them and they can come straight out of the paddock, straight onto the trailer and straight back to the paddock. Yeah, so they up the race here, they get clamped and spun onto a flat shearing platform which sort of rotates once they're clamped in place and the other one will come up beside it and you can clamp him ready for the next lot. It takes the, uh, the catch and drag out of it. That's, that's where a lot of the, the injuries happen with shears is trying to catch these big guys in the pen and drag them out. It usually takes two or three blokes to tip them, well, these big sheep anyway. So I reckon even I could have a go at that if it's just sort of standing <laughs> up at waist height shearing. Those, those were border Lester rams that they were looking at in northern Tasmania. It's almost like there's been too much dipping into the genetics of those big burly breeds like Dorpers and Paul Dorsets. Yeah, still, you know, they're Merinos, they're mm. Border Lesters, they're, you know, um, big Dorsets, as you say, and uh, too heavy to lift, toss. And yeah, you, it's just too hard on your back to do that sort of work. Yep, especially trying to get through hundreds a day. Yep. Hey, Serena, thank you so much for that wrap of Rural News this week. You have fun in the Riverina. It's my home territory. Absolutely, I will. Lend us your ears and experience a world of audio content with ABC Listen. A world of sound. Like Expanse Pink Diamond Heist. How millions of dollars of diamonds were stolen in the middle of the bush and somehow smuggled to Europe. And dive deep beneath the surface of three crooked cops known as the Rat Pack in Dig. Sirens are coming. Dorothy handed Hallahan the money and when he walked off, the undercovers swooped. The ABC Listen app. Lend me your ears. Download it now from your app store. This week we're following the floodwater. After big rains in northern Australia, water's made its way down to South Australia's Riverland, where it's filling up wetlands and floodplains and bringing frogs and birds out to play. We'll learn how feral donkeys are being retrained to work as guardian animals, and we'll meet the women who are taking the helm of harvesters, haulers and cane trains during this year's sugarcane harvest. They're helping to fill a labour shortage and finding some real perks to the job. The scenery, like it's so beautiful driving around different farms in Mossman and Daintree, and sometimes it's like a wildlife documentary happening in front of you. We see like snakes and wild pigs and so many bandicoots and dingoes and kangaroos, crocodiles even. <laughs> so I love that aspect and it's just a new challenge but it's really fun. Work with a wildlife documentary on the side, it sounds like a pretty good gig. We'll have more on that story coming up. First today, we're headed to the Northern Territory, where a program introducing high school students to the work of remote rangers is marking a decade and celebrating the success of its graduates. Growing up in Meningrida, a small Indigenous community on the Northern Territory's remote Arnhem Land coastline, Jonah Ryan dreamed of becoming a ranger. You know, I thought about ranger for every year, like since when I was two years old when I went camping with my old man. And like after that camp, I would just think about that day, like camp, it was so fun doing bushwalking with rangers and doing ranger work. Jonah's dad worked as a ranger. And so from a young age, he was able to spend time on country with him. I wanted to be just like my dad. So when this program came on, you know, I said to myself, just go for it, you know. Don't think about it. Don't keep saying it. Just do it. G'day, I'm Max Rowley. The program Jonah is talking about is called Learning on Country. 
Funded by the National Indigenous Australian Agency and run by the NT's Northern Land Council. And he has it to thank for realising his dream of becoming a Barwanunga Jelk Ranger. The Learning on Country program is a joint initiative between Aboriginal ranger groups and remote Indigenous schools and uses what's known as both ways learning. The program recently marked its 10th anniversary with a celebration and gathering at Nitmaluk National Park on the lands of the Jawan people just outside the NT town of Catherine. It's where I caught up with Jennifer Yantana, a traditional owner from Groot Island. Learning on country program is a better way for us to, to teach the kids about two ways culture, the indigenous way and the Balanda way. She spent years as a ranger and now sits in the steering committee for the Learning on Country program. It is really important for us as uh, elders to bring back what was left. So we have to teach it and renew everything again because Learning on Country is the most important program for the kids so they can pass it on to their kids and their kids and to the future generation. And what kinds of things are the rangers doing with the students? They're teaching them how to look after the country, especially the marine debris, collecting, cleaning the beaches, rescuing the turtles. Learning about culture as well, I'm sure? Yes, learning about culture. That is the most important thing for kids to learn about culture. The dancing, the singing, the stories are all there, but they need to make it alive again. In terms of the program practised today, it can be traced back to a school in Arnhem Land in the early 2000s and a chance encounter there. When I graduated from university, I did the first six months relief teaching pretty much around the traps. That's Mason Shoals. I got a week's gig out at Manangarita. Not knowing much about the community, I flew in during the night on a little plane, dropped off with the principal and just put into a house, and I had no idea where I was or what I was doing. Yeah, I was thinking, like, when his first day, he came in through the classroom, and I didn't know. We were just right there, and, you know, got shocked. That's Joseph Ditto, a local traditional owner who's also a Jabana language and culture teacher at Manningreta College. I was lucky enough to have Ditto working with me. We just had a great relationship and we grew a lot together and senior secondary education started in remote communities in 2003 and uh, they, I suppose, tasked us with being able to deliver a science curriculum for senior secondary. We had our thinking caps on. We decided to go with a subject called contemporary issues and science. And, you know, having a background with rangers and having Ditto beside me, we decided to uh, link up with the Jelk Rangers. Yeah, that project we're helping together with senior Jelk Rangers and junior rangers. Because we didn't have a science classroom, there was nothing available for us to be able to teach science in, in a traditional sense. So we went to the community strengths, and that was two-way learning, Indigenous knowledge and the work that rangers are doing, blending those two knowledge systems together. And it really worked and had a lot of success in the community. It did take a few years to get the wheels really turning and get, get the rangers on board, but you know um, we had some fa- fantastic people over at the rangers that really wanted to engage or the rangers wanted to engage with the kids. I suppose the difficulty became, became so successful, it was becoming difficult to manage with the complexities of liaisoning between the rangers, all the tasks, you know, trying to get the curriculum, all the subject matter to 
I suppose correlate with what we needed to bring back into the classroom and so we ran with that for about six years. Students doing a lot of great work, a lot of incredible experiences. From there it developed into an Indigenous Ranger cadetship and eventually the Learning on Country program. Initially at four schools, but growing over the years to include more than 15 communities right across Arnhem Land and as far south as Borroloola. Jonah Ryan is one of many graduates of the program. It led him to his dream job as a ranger, and now he gets great satisfaction seeing the next generation learning on country. I'm really grateful to be here and seeing the young ones becoming the young, like just like I'm looking at my younger me standing and talking and being a next leader, and I'm like, like this is what I needed. You know, I needed someone to be up in my level, and now I'm seeing like lots of young young men, young women wanting to be a ranger looking after their country and you know that's really good to hear they want to look after their country yeah and I always tell them like what I tell myself you know just don't give up you started that you just continue on and you will find yourself with a green shirt yeah and looking after your country and you know keeping you your songline strong and your culture strong and working on your country that's the most beautiful thing about Ranger, you know, you're working on your country. You're not working in your community, you're working on your country. You're doing it for your country, you're doing it for your people. Yeah, and you're doing it for the next generation. So at the moment you can hear some frog species. So the Murray Valley froglet is that eek, that high-pitched sound that you can hear. So they're loving it at the moment. Um, and the spotted marsh frog is that staccato lower sound that you can hear. So two of those frog species have started calling already, which is exciting. These happy and noisy frogs are enjoying the extra water that has flowed onto the floodplain here at Chowler Game Reserve in South Australia's Riverland region in recent weeks. And they are not the only ones. Ecologist Grace Hodder from the State Department for Environment and Water says a number of bird species are also being drawn to the floodplains in wetter conditions. At the moment we've already got some of our duck species coming in, things like grey teal, chestnut teal. We'll probably start getting some more migratory ducks in large numbers. So um, species like the pink-eared duck come in the hundreds and their thousands to use these waters more into the spring season. But then there's a whole suite of terrestrial birds as well. So there are honey eaters that will start feeding on the nectar produced by the black box trees and the river red gums. There are nomadic species, so species that come from lakes inland such as stilts and other types of waders. And, and then migratory waders that come from overseas, so things like redneck stint, sharp-tailed sandpipers, they actually fly from across the other side of the world to use some of these wetlands at Chowler. Hello, I'm Anita Ward. I'm chatting to Grace Hodder near the Coppermine Waterhole on the Chowler floodplain north of Renmark in South Australia's Riverland. She says it's a real buzz seeing the wetlands come to life as floodwaters from the north of Australia move down the Murray River system into South Australia. Oh, it's so exciting. It's, it's really chalk and cheese from what it looks like in drier times. So um, when I first started in this job, things looked pretty brown and pretty dry on Chowler and we've had uh, two decent years with water and particularly this year with the high flows. So everything is, is green and coming to life and it, it's, yeah, it's really exciting when things start calling and flowering and all the action starts happening. Just south of Chowler, Peter Kale is manager and principal ecologist at Calprom Station for the Australian Landscape Trust. So this is the edge of Woolpool uh, Lake, which is one of two of the large lakes that are on Calprom floodplain. 
Kelperham floodplain is part of the Riverland Ramsar site, which is an internationally significant wetland. We're seeing particularly high flows at the moment. We can literally see the water right behind you. Where has this water come from? So this is the high flows that have come out of the flooding and so forth in Queensland and New South Wales. And this is human-induced high flows down at this end of the the system where the managers of the river are are releasing water to uh, ensure that they've got enough capacity in their dams for any other high flows that might be coming through in the future. What does it mean for Lake Woolpalool and and the environment around it to have this water here at the moment? So there's some goods and bads about that process. This particular lake uh, was going through a wetting and drying cycle before these high flows came. We were getting some really good aquatic uh, responses out of that process. Now with the high flows that have actually overbanked the, the, the top of the regulator, It's unregulated water going in there and unfortunately that also takes with it things like carp and they are causing some damage to this particular lake at the moment. But it's also watering these trees that you can see. Those trees need these high flows to get the water they need to to persist in the long term. They live 400 years so they need that occasional drink every once in a while. How old are some of these black boxes? These black boxes would go back at least a couple of hundred years. Obviously, it's hard to tell exactly, but this system changed through the sort of 20s through to the 60s. Um, And a lot of trees in this system died because uh, there was a lot less water coming into these lake systems. Most of the trees here are mature trees, and so they would be at least a couple of hundred years old. So to have this water now, what does it mean for the trees for, the, for their future? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's vital for them to get this sort of watering and they will definitely uh, be able to handle the next 10 years of whatever comes in terms of available water from the system of wetlands. Indigenous park ranger Jeremy Sumner has noticed more native animals returning to the area around Lake Woolpalool on Calprum Station. Yeah, I've seen a lot of emus um, in particular around this year. Like You're just seeing them everywhere at the moment and it's just yeah, such a good feeling. Even the birds, like I went out on the other side of this lake last week and I could hear about eight different calls from different birds. So that was a good day out, I suppose. <laughs> Indigenous park ranger Jeremy Sumner. He spoke to reporter Anita Ward in South Australia's Riverland, where high flows are filling up wetlands and bringing native wildlife to the region's watering holes. Before that, reporter Max Rowley found out about the Learning on Country program that's been running in Northern Territory communities for 10 years. You can see more on both of those stories by heading to the RN homepage, where you'll find Country Breakfast under the Programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper, with you on RN this morning. Still to come, the feral donkeys getting a new lease on life, working to keep farm animals safe from predators. And we'll head to the cane harvest in far north Queensland, where new recruits are getting comfortable in the driver's seat of some heavy machinery. Hi, my name's Elsa, I'm 27 years of age and I'm here in Mossman driving power hauls for the sugarcane harvest. Our power haul is essentially a big tractor, Um, we've got a 10 tonne bit on the back which uh, is designed to collect and carry cane. Our job as power haul drivers, we collect the cane from the harvester and then we fill up our bin, take it to the bin stands uh, and dump it in there for the mill to come and collect. We also spend time maintaining the tractors and equipment. I have worked on farms a few times before but never driving heavy machinery so this is uh, quite a new skill for me. My previous job was actually working on a prawn trawler as a cook so quite a contrast to what I'm doing today. 
from cooking on a prawn trawler to driving a power haul on a sugarcane farm in far north Queensland. Elsa Tickler is picking up new skills and keeping her career options well and truly open. I think learning to drive heavy machinery is a great skill set to learn um, and it's something that will be so valuable in my life in the future, I guess. Yeah, I think I'll be back for next season. I don't see any reason why women can't do this job as well as men can do it. G'day, I'm Tanya Murphy. I'm here during harvest time on this cane farm at Mossman where Elsa Tickler is one of two young women taking on this tricky role. It requires skill, coordination and concentration to manoeuvre the 10-tonne tractor over rough terrain and tip sugarcane into a train carriage without spilling it. Elsa, along with Jasmine Cartwright, were the first women to ever apply for this job here on Matt Watson's farm. And they're proving they're well and truly up to the task. Hi, I'm Jasmine. I've never driven heavy vehicles before starting this job and prior to this year never really imagined that I would go down this path for work, but I'm really happy I did. I was actually so shocked, like in our first week, a boss like told us that he'd never had any women haulers. Like we just assumed that there would be like, definitely like women can do the job just as well as men. It takes a bit of time to like practice and get used to the trucks because they're just unique in the way that they run but absolutely women should give it a go. What do you enjoy most about this job? The environment we're working in, like the scenery, like it's so beautiful driving around different farms in Mossman and Daintree. And sometimes it's like a wildlife documentary happening in front of you. We see like snakes and wild pigs and so many bandicoots and dingoes and kangaroos, crocodiles even. So I love that aspect and just it's really challenging because the roads are like obviously a bit off-road and you're driving like a really heavy vehicle. So it's just a new challenge but it's really fun actually. A new skill set, super fun and I'm pretty happy in far north Queensland for now. With the cane tips successfully into train carriages, Another young woman takes on the job of getting the cane delivered safely to the Mossman sugar mill. Hi, my name's Sophie. I'm 22 years old and I moved here four and a half years ago from Adelaide. This will be my fourth year now at the Mossman sugar mill and yeah, this year I'll be training to be a driver. I was a makeup artist when I worked in Adelaide so it was a little bit of a field change. I think it's something I love doing a whole lot more, you know, I feel like it's meaningful. How long does it take to train to become a loco driver and when will you be fully fledged? So you need 200 hours to get your ticket and then you get a test at the end. So yeah, Julian's training me this year. I was with him as a driver assistant last year as well. So yeah, slowly building the hours up and writing them all down in my logbook. What do you enjoy most about this job? I honestly think the scenery is amazing. Like you see really nice parts of Mossman and we go all the way up to Winebill, all the way to Mowbray towards Port Douglas. We have to cross a few bridges on the way and there's stunning creeks. And I also love the people I work with. Like we have a great crew here and it's all around a really good place to work. 
as a loco driver, are you also sort of a train mechanic? Well, when we do have maintenance days or when uh, there's days that the mill needs to stop for whatever reason, we do help out John, who is our mechanic here, uh, greasing the locos. We have to change the grease bombs. We have to make sure all the oils and the final drives and everything's uh, topped up and working well. We also have maintenance days where we have to adjust the brakes and put new ones in as well. So, yeah, we do have to learn a little bit about that. I understand you're not the only female loco driver, but there's not that many around, is there? No, actually, when I did start, yeah, I was one of the only females working on the trains. But now, as the years have gone past, there's more and more women who are actually coming in and learning to drive and learning to be driver assistants as well, which is really good to to see. I've actually heard a few people say women are a little bit more careful on the trains. (laughs) Yeah, they pay attention and um, they're very careful. What are your future plans? Do you see yourself having a long-term career in this field? Yeah, I do. I, I, I actually love working here, especially it's, it's seasonal as well. So it's only five, six months of the year. Um, now that I'm getting my driver's ticket, I do see myself wanting to stay on and continue driving. And wherever it leads me, maybe I could one day have a permanent job here in the off-season. I've just fallen in love with this place. So it's something that I can see myself doing in the, in the future. Do you have any advice for other young women? I just think go for it. You know, you can train to be anything that you want to be if you put your mind to it. And it's a really open industry. I think if you want to do it, then just go for it. Because I've learnt so much this year and anyone can do it really. In the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales, sheep farmers have found an unlikely saviour. While donkeys may have a reputation for being stubborn and difficult, farmers are finding they make great guardians for their livestock. But elsewhere in Australia, donkeys are considered pests. Out on stations, the donkeys really are classified as feral because they're taking up prime livestock feed. So for farmers, they're of no value to them. And to muster them, they're they're pretty interesting. So a lot of costs there in mustering, but they've got to find some way of eradicating them. That's Brooke Purvis. She is the founder of the Last Stop Donkey Program that rehomes feral donkeys and puts them to use as guardian animals. She understands why donkeys are considered pests in places like central Queensland and the Northern Territory, but she believes they're too useful to cull. So through lambing and calving, they're really, really worth their weight in gold due to the fact that when something comes into their paddock, they're quite territorial. They actually go towards the danger instead of running away. So if a dog does come in to attack, a donkey just stomps it or it does run it off. The biggest thing with farming around here, there was a lot of sheep farming going back a generation or so, and a lot of people went out of that due to stock losses. And now they're trying to get people to bring sheep back into this country, because it is good sheep country up here, and they've got a lot more confidence in seeing the success of other farmers that have taken on a donkey, just part of a pilot and a test program to see how effective it would be. And it has just been gangbusters. Like it, it has been a really good result of the donkeys. G'day, I'm Amelia Bernasconi, and Brooke's appreciation for donkeys led to the birth of this innovative program that's seeing the once feral donkeys being handled and trained up to protect farm livestock. Someone who has benefited from the program is Diane Parnell, who has a small sheep flock at her property near Maitland. 
Like so many farmers in this area, she'd long battled with wild dogs attacking her flock and the uncertainty that each morning would bring. Lost 25 in one night. They just ran them down, killed them, didn't eat them, uh, didn't tear them to bits or anything. So it was just a sport for them. I haven't had a donkey before, <laughs> so it's a new experience. But she's just so gentle with them, you know. She herds them in, she'll just round them up and bring them in, and they just follow her like she's their mum. I go out at night. If I hear anything outside, I'll go out, out at night with the torch. And, yeah. But I'm more relieved because I've been out here at night when there's a fox around, and she's got them all herded together watching them. Now, Diane's donkey is quiet. Even with a foal at foot, she's calm, she's stress-free, even around people. But that took hours and hours and a whole lot of patience. And luckily, the Last Stop Donkey program isn't a one-woman show. Brooke Purvis knew she'd need a good team to give these donkeys a new purpose in life, in a much longer life than they'd perhaps otherwise would have had. It was a little nudge of her ag teacher friend at a cattle parader's competition one day, and the St Catherine's Catholic College soon became the Last Stop Donkey Program's launching pad. Joanna Towers took on the task, initially with her Year 9 class. It came after COVID because in lockdown, the agriculture students did a lot of theory, a lot of learning at home. And when we came back to school, the guidelines were still very much about, you know, maybe lots of ventilation being outdoors. And I thought, what can I do? I need a project. So Brooke is a friend of mine and she had the idea about the donkeys. And I thought, perfect, you know, we can work with these donkeys and they can break them in and um, learn on the job, so to speak. So it was certainly something new for those students and one of those who lives right next door to the school ag farm, Jacob Merrick, was uh, quite the standout from the get-go. He now works alongside Brooke as the Last Stop Donkey program continues outside the classroom. I'm quite impressed, quite proud, I guess, of like what we've achieved. Like You can imagine like donkeys are just feral as. Like, they've come from the Northern Territory or Queensland or wherever. They've come down on a truck a couple of days... So when they come here, like I said, they were just feral and they just throw themselves over and do everything they would you'd expect to do because they just they've never seen humans before, never had halters on them, let alone you know us being able to touch them. But now you can just earlier in the paddock, you just go up to them with licorice or no licorice, you just walk up and you can pat them, you can do all contact out there, and now you can come into the yards and just call their name and they'll just come to you or go what. Oh, that's my name. Yep, you think, you know. They're just so dopey animals once you get used to them. Once the donkeys are broken in, the journey certainly doesn't end there. The program is committed to the donkeys' welfare, as well as that of the farmers and their stock. Their biggest worry is, oh, I'm not going to know what to do with the donkey. How do I look after it? So giving them the confidence that, you know, we can give them those tools to then implement back at their farm. Because I guess, you know, the donkey's welfare has to be taken into account because we do hear quite a lot of stories where the farmers just turn them out in the paddock with their sheep and feet, teeth, all of that's ignored. So a part of us is really wanting to, you know, give the farmer those tools and they can come here. We've started a program where farmers are coming in and they're doing a day with us working with the donkeys just so they get to understand that particular animal and, and how to get the best out of them. 
Brooke Purvis, who founded the Last Stop Donkey program. She spoke with our reporter Amelia Berlusconi about the work they're doing to train feral donkeys to work on sheep farms in the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales. You can read more on that story on the RN website. Go to abc.net.au slash rn and look for Big Country under the Programs tab. Coming up, it's more than 130 times larger than the Sydney Harbour, and now water from the Great Artesian Basin is emerging across western Queensland in places it's never been seen before. So we're really excited, and they're so unique that it is possible that there are unknown species in them, so it's really important to look after them. ABCRN connects curious people with interesting ideas. Whether you're looking for the complex to be explained in a way that just makes sense. Or you want to get caught up in colourful conversations about the latest in arts or pop culture or current affairs. Or maybe you want to dive deep into a podcast about some random obscure thing that has become the new obsession. Switch on ABCRN anytime. We're here for your curiosity. ABCRN. Think bigger. Is it even possible to replace synthetic nitrogen in broadacre cropping systems? Internationally, there have been several recent examples of governments placing limits on synthetic fertiliser use because of the associated greenhouse gas emissions. And that's got farmers worried about what might happen here. Fertiliser production and use account for 58% of the Australian wheat crop's greenhouse gas footprint in the last five years, according to the Department of Agriculture. Luke Batters, who farms near St Arnold, is one of those trailing alternatives. He spoke to reporter Angus Verley. We predominantly farm broadacre. Uh, we've got a large cropping enterprise and we've also got some livestock. The operation is largely a synthetic-based system. Uh, we started direct drilling about 40 years ago and from there... The inputs uh, uh, have increased, synthetic fertiliser and and chemicals, and I'd say now it's largely a a recipe-based system. Uh, Apply as proactive as possible, um, but also on a diagnostic basis as as required. Okay, so you're heavily reliant on on synthetic, synthetic fertiliser particularly, but you're running some trials uh, looking at changing that? Yeah, look, I I became really interested in um, some regen trials sort of work information after being off the farm for a while I came back and and had a different mindset and a a different view I suppose with with what I saw coming back onto the family farm and so we're trialing a few different things largely around inputs in terms of how different carbon and biological and um, chemistry based inputs affect the system and uh, so the things that I've been using in those trials uh, composts and, and lime manures, uh, seaweed, uh, vermicast, uh, and a few micronutrients as well. If you look at some of the figures around uh, greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture, uh, the big standout is fertiliser, those synthetic fertilisers, both the the production of it and then the application of it. Nitrogen particularly, uh, how easy or how readily can you replace synthetic nitrogen in your system? Yeah, so that's that's one thing that's really stood out and it wasn't until I started doing this trial work that I realised how reliant we were on nitrogen as a synthetic input and largely urea. Well, in the major part of this trial, I went largely cold turkey 
and stop using synthetic fertilisers and it's been quite stark the difference between over the fence having applied synthetic starter fertiliser and urea versus no synthetic fertiliser and having to rely on those those alternatives like the worm juice and um, and compost applications and a lot of those things don't have a lot of nitrogen and these things will work in a system once the biology gets up and going but because our current system is so depleted of biology it really hasn't taken off hasn't gotten a full swing and it's um and people do say it does take time um, and that's obviously quite evident okay so to this stage having taken out synthetic nitrogen and attempting to replace it with alternatives those trials aren't aren't competing on yield no, they're not. Look, you can see in an area where I've got uh, sheep constantly grazing, you can see quite evident the urine patches and they look great. And in when you've, I'm doing a lot of mixed species and the legumes grow quite well. And um, to me, that indicates that the other, a lot of the other micronutrients are, are there and major nutrients are going well, but the nitrogen's just not, not there in the system. And whenever there's been a grass phase, it's been quite obvious that the nitrogen's lacking. So given that taking synthetic nitrogen out and replacing it with alternatives means to this point you can't compete on yield, why not just stick with synthetic? And what's the motivation for you to try and take that out of your system? I know the system or the systems around making uh, fertiliser are very uh, energy intensive. I know the Haber-Bosch process requires lots of uh, energy just to make the units to to produce the urea that, that we use. And... Uh, costs are always going up. Soils become a massive focus. Uh, there's lots of environmental concerns that, that we need to address. And just in the six, seven years that I was out of the industry, it's been quite evident that our synthetic inputs have increased massively. And if we keep going down this path, you know, we're going to run into into trouble overall. And we just, we need to look at these alternatives now while we've got the opportunity because if, uh, if there's uh, regulations around what we can and can't do and we haven't got an alternative we're going to be caught coming unstuck. And is that what you're worried about, that potentially at some stage that you may be limited as to how much synthetic fertiliser you can use? Because internationally we've already seen, uh, there are examples at the moment in the Netherlands and Canada where just that is happening. Are you worried that the focus might turn to agriculture and there may be some sorts of caps on, on synthetics put in place as an attempt to reduce emissions? Yeah, I think that's the case, and and Australia probably uh, is largely a follower on that front. We always see these things starting overseas, and if uh, it's going to happen over here, you can only assume that they'll start introducing um, caps in Australia as well. So you're trying to get ahead of that. We are, and it's hard to it's hard to change your system because if you know your system works and and it's profitable you know, albeit small from one year to the next, it's quite scary to change your system into something else. And I suppose that's why you do trials. It's why you do things on a, on a small scale rather than changing your, your whole operation. The interest is, is certainly there and, and there's plenty of people in our district that are e- exploring those avenues. Five years ago, I would have said that there was no one about looking to make make sweeping changes to their operation but I know of half a dozen within a 20k drive of of our farming operation making changes and and making successful changes um, using alternatives. What alternative to synthetic nitrogen do you think holds the best promise? From the the work that I've done and the people that I've spoken to I think it's probably just not limited to one aspect. 
we certainly do well in our current system through growing legumes and having residual carryover, and maybe there has to be more of a focus. Um, but it's all these alternatives put together, um, using biological seed dressings and that sort of stuff as well, certainly helps the, that nitrogen become available through um, one microorganism breaking down and con- getting consumed by another and excess nitrogen released in the system. But uh, as I said earlier, it's hard to find the system working, going cold turkey from, from the evidence that I've been presented with just in the last couple of years. Are you going to persist, Luke, continue to go down this path? Yeah, definitely. I think it's probably about finding what works on your operation. And certainly some soils, things have worked better than others. And yeah, and just trying to find out what works and um, continually speaking to others. And I've got the Vic No-Till conference coming up and it'll be good to have a chat to people there and seeing what's working for them. That was St Arnold Farmer Luke Butters speaking with Angus Furley. Right across outback Queensland, new species are being uncovered as water springs emerge in places they've never been seen before. It's largely due to the capping and piping of bores across the Great Artesian Basin. Madeleine McCosker filed this report. The Great Artesian Basin is one of the world's biggest water reservoirs, but for more than 150 years, much of its precious water has been wasted through unregulated bore drilling. Now, thanks to the success of a decades-long rehabilitation program, water pressure in the basin has increased and it's led to the emergence of natural springs. Without the Gabsy scheme and all of the capping and piping of the bores throughout the region, I don't think it's likely that there would be new springs emerging at the rate that they are. Natalie Pearce is a senior project officer with Desert Channels Queensland, a natural resources management organisation in Western Queensland. She says, much to her team's delight, a number of potentially unidentified macroinvertebrate species have been discovered at the springs. So we're really excited and they, they are so unique that it is possible that there are uh, unknown species in them and so they really, it's really important to look after them. The Great Artesian Basin covers 22% of Australia's land base and holds more than 130,000 times more water than the Sydney Harbour. About two-thirds of the basin is within Queensland and covers an area of more than one million square metres. For many across inland Australia, it's the only reliable source of fresh water. If you look at the recharge which occurs up in Queensland uh, on the eastern side of the basin, it enters the Great Artesian Basin there and then flows under the earth and comes out in springs and things in South Australia. And by the time it reaches there... Some of that water has been underground for up to two million years. And certainly in other places in the Great Artesian Basin, it's been underground for hundreds of thousands of years. David Robinson is the head of Basin Systems at Geoscience Australia. Different water systems within the basin need to be managed slightly differently. And and it really just comes down to trying to find that happy medium that um, we're allowing enough water to stay in the basin to filtrate through for all of the users, noting that it is a very large basin and covers multiple um, state-based jurisdictions, but also that you're allowing enough water to go through and and support still the ground-dependent ecosystems. More than 150 years ago, early settlers began drilling bores in the basin to take advantage of the untapped water source, but it was largely unregulated. 
Since 1989, more than 700 bores have been rehabilitated, more than 14,000 kilometres of bore drains have been decommissioned and an estimated 214,000 megalitres of water has been saved each year, all in an effort to have all bores capped and bore drains replaced by 2027. DCQ has been working for the past 18 months to identify and protect springs within its coverage area in western Queensland. So far, the field team has identified 95 springs, and only 10 of those were previously known. But they're not always easy to find, according to Natalie Pearce. It's required a lot of really unique techniques to even find a lot of these new springs. So the emerging springs, when they are brand new, don't look like much at all. Sometimes they are a little puddle of mud about the size of a shoe print, which is part of the reason why they can be so difficult to find. A lot of them we found just by stumbling across them when we're in the area. More than 70 macroinvertebrate species have been found at the springs as a result of ecological surveys. Ms Pierce says a number of those species were potentially previously unidentified and further work is being done to identify what they are. As well as added pressure, there's also more water going into the Great Artesian Basin thanks to increased rain and flooding across certain parts of Queensland. The basin is usually replenished or recharged on the eastern side of the Great Dividing Range, where water permeates through the surface to the deepest parts of the basin. Dr David Robinson says there's been significant recharge happening this year. So the, the high levels of rainfall that we have had over the last six months or so are absolutely recharging the groundwater systems across the, the, the entire region. The many dryland rivers that are dry a lot of the time suddenly start to flow and they will channel water across the surface of the earth and at various points along their journey, some water will leak down into these shallower aquifers. But um, they're t recharging groundwater at different layers. That does vary from location to location. So in order to get to the deeper parts, though, it has to be rainfall on those mountains. Despite the promising appearance of many springs, there's no guarantee they'll remain viable, so protecting them is crucial. Natalie Pierce from DCQ says the threat of weeds and pests often obstruct the development of the springs, but control work is helping to find springs where they otherwise wouldn't have been found. The, the weed control works that our field team have done on these sites has been really, really critical to the health of the emerging springs because there are without a doubt a number of springs that would not have emerged without uh, the weed control. We are still ourselves uh, in a strong learning process because this is such a unique occurrence that we're still getting to understand what the best way to manage these springs will be. But the important thing is that there does need to be some sort of management. So they shouldn't just be necessarily locked up and forgotten about forever. They do need to be actively managed. Natalie Pierce from Desert Channels, Queensland, ending that report from Madeleine McCosker. I feel like we can file that one under environmental good news, which is something we rarely get to do. My name's Clint Jasper. Thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Matthew Sigley for bringing Country Breakfast together. And please stick around for more A-grade radio on your Saturday morning here on RN.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.